When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Other scientists can interpret them as easily as I can, and I'm not one who would condone that tampering with the truth which often gave my order a bad name in the olden days. The crew are already sufficiently depressed. I wonder how they'll take this ultimate irony. Few of them have any religious faith, yet they will not relish using this final weapon in their campaign against me, that private, good-natured, but fundamentally serious war which lasted all the way from Earth. It amused them to have a Jesuit as chief astrophysicist. Dr. Chandler, for instance, could never get over it. Why are medical men such notorious atheists? Uh, sometimes he'd meet me on the observation deck where the lights are always low so that the stars shine with undiminished glory. He would come up to me in the gloom and stand staring now to the great oval port while the heavens crawled slowly around us as the ship turned end over end with a residual spin we had never bothered to correct. And he'd say at last something like, Well, Father, it goes on forever and ever, and perhaps something made it, but how can you believe that something has a special interest in us, in our miserable little world? That just beats me. Then the argument would start, while the stars and nebulae would swing around us in silent, endless arcs beyond the flawlessly clear plastic of the observation port. It was, I think, the apparent incongruity of my position that caused most amusement to the crew. In vain, I'd point to my three papers in the Astrophysical Journal, my five in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. I'd remind them that my order has long been famous for its scientific works. We may be few now, but ever since the 18th century, we've made contributions to astronomy and geophysics out of all proportion to our numbers. Will my report on the Phoenix Nebula end our thousand years of history? It'll end, I fear, much more than that. I do not know who gave the nebula its name, which seems to me a very bad one. If it contains a prophecy, it's one that cannot be verified for several billion years. Even the word nebula is misleading. This is a far smaller object than those stupendous clouds of mist the stuff of unborn stars that are scattered throughout the length of the Milky Way. On the cosmic scale, indeed, the Phoenix Nebula is a tiny thing, a tenuous shell of gas surrounding a single star, or what is left of a star. The Rubens engraving of Loyola seems to mock me as it hangs there above the spectrophotometer tracings. What would you, Father, have made of this knowledge that has come into my keeping so far from the little world that was all the universe you knew would your faith have risen to the challenge as mine has failed to do? You gaze into the distance, Father, but I have traveled a distance beyond any that you could have imagined when you founded our order a thousand years ago. No other survey ship has been so far from Earth. We are at the very frontiers of the explored universe. We set out to reach the Phoenix Nebula. We succeeded, and we are homeward bound with our burden of knowledge. I wish I could lift that burden from my shoulders, but I call to you in vain across the centuries and the light years that, that lie between us. On the book you are holding, the words are plain to read. Ad maiorum, pegorium. The message runs. But it is a message I can no longer believe. Would you still believe it if you could see what we have found? We knew, of course, what the Phoenix Nebula was. Every year in our galaxy alone, more than a hundred stars explode, blazing for a few hours or days with thousands of times their normal brilliance before they sink back into death and obscurity. Such are the ordinary novae, the commonplace disasters of the universe. 
I've recorded the spectrograms and light curves of dozens since I started working at the Lunar Observatory. But three or four times in every thousand years occurs something beside which even a nova pales into total insignificance. When a star becomes a supernova, it may for a little while outshine all the massed suns of the galaxy. The Chinese astronomers watched this happen in A.D. 1054, not knowing what it was they saw. And five centuries later, in 1572, a supernova blazed in Cassiopeia so brilliantly that it was visible in the daylight sky. There have been three more in the thousand years that have passed since then. Our mission was to visit the remnants of such a catastrophe to reconstruct the events that led up to it, and if possible, to learn its cause. We came slowly in through the concentric shells of gas that had been blasted out 6,000 years before, yet were expanding still. They were immensely hot, radiating even now with a fierce violet light, but were far too tenuous to do us any damage. When the star had exploded, its outer layers had been driven upward with such speed that they had escaped completely from its gravitational field. Now they formed a hollow shell, large enough to engulf a thousand solar systems, and at its center burned the tiny, fantastic object which the star had now become, a white dwarf, smaller than the Earth, yet weighing a million times as much. The glowing gas shells were all around us, banishing the normal night of interstellar space. We were flying into the center of a cosmic bomb that had detonated millennia ago, whose incandescent crust was still ripping apart. The immense scale of the explosion and the fact that the debris already covered a volume of space many billions of miles across robbed the scene of any visible movement. It would take decades before the unaided eye could detect any motion in these tortured wisps and eddies of gas. Yet the sense of turbulent expansion was overwhelming. We had checked our primary drive hours before and were drifting slowly toward the fierce little star ahead. Once it had been a sun like our own, but it had squandered in a few hours the energy that should have kept it shining for a million years. Now it was a shrunken miser hoarding its resources as if trying to make amends for its prodigal youth. No one seriously expected to find planets. If there had been any before the explosion, they would have been boiled into puffs of vapor and their substance lost in the greater wreckage of the star itself. But we made the automatic search, as we always do when approaching an unknown sun, and presently we found a single small world circling the star at an immense distance. It must have been the Pluto of this vanished solar system orbiting on the frontiers of the night too far from the central sun ever to have known life. Its remoteness had saved it from the fate of all its lost companions. The passing fires had seared its rocks and burned away the mantle of frozen gas that must have covered it in the days before the disaster. We landed, and we found the vault. Its builders had made sure that we should. The monolithic marker that stood above the entrance was now a fused stump. But even the first long-range photographs told us that here was the work of intelligence. A little later, we detected the continent-wide pattern of radioactivity that had been buried in the rock. Even if the pylon above the vault had been destroyed, this would have remained, an immovable and all-but-eternal beacon calling to the stars. Our ship fell toward this gigantic bullseye like an arrow into its target. The pylon must have been a mile high when it was built, but now it looked like a 
candle that had melted down into a puddle of wax. It took us a week to drill through the fused rock since we did not have the proper tools for a task like this. We were astronomers, not archaeologists, but we could improvise. Our original purpose was forgotten. This lonely monument reared with such labor at the greatest possible distance from the doomed sun could have only one meaning. A civilization that knew it was about to die had made its last bid for immortality. It'll take us generations to examine all the treasures that were placed in the vault. They had plenty of time to prepare for their son must have given its first warnings many years before the final detonation. Everything that they wished to preserve, all the fruit of their genius, they brought here to this distant world in the days before the end, hoping that some other race would find it and that they would not be utterly forgotten. Would we have done as well, or would we have been too lost in our own misery to give thought to a future we could never see or share? If only they had had a little more time. They could travel freely enough between the planets of their own sun, but they had not yet learned to cross the interstellar gulfs, and the nearest solar system was a hundred light years away. Yet even had they possessed the secret of the transfinite drive, no more than a few millions could have been saved. Perhaps it was better thus. Even if they had not been so disturbingly human as their sculpture shows, we could not have helped admiring them and grieving for their fate. They left thousands of visual records and the machines for projecting them together with elaborate pictorial instructions from which it will not be difficult to learn their written language. We have examined many of these records and brought to life for the first time in 6,000 years the warmth and beauty of a civilization that in many ways must have been superior to our own. Perhaps they only showed us the best, and one can hardly blame them. But their worlds were very lovely, and their cities were built with a grace that matches anything of man's. We have watched them at work and play, and listened to their musical speech sounding across the centuries. One scene is still before my eyes, a group of children on a beach of strange blue sand, playing in the waves as children play on earth. Curious whip-like trees line the shore, and some very large animals wading in the shallows, yet attracting no attention at all. And sinking into the sea, still warm and friendly and life-giving, is the sun that will soon turn traitor and obliterate all this innocent happiness. Perhaps if we had not been so far from home, and so vulnerable to loneliness, we should not have been so deeply moved. Many of us had seen the ruins of ancient civilizations on other worlds, but they had never affected us so profoundly. This tragedy was unique. It's one thing for a race to fail and die, as nations and cultures have done on Earth, but to be destroyed so completely in the full flower of its achievement, leaving no survivors, how could that be reconciled with the mercy of God? My colleagues have asked me that, and I have given what answers I can. Perhaps you could have done better, Father. But I have found nothing in the Exercitia Spiritualia that helps me here. They were not an evil people. I do not know what gods they worshipped, if indeed they worshipped any. But I have looked back at them across the centuries and have watched while the loveliness they used their last strength to preserve was brought forth again into the light of their shrunken sun. They could have taught us much. Why were they destroyed? 
I know the answers that my colleagues will give when they get back to Earth. They will say that the universe has no purpose and no plan, and that since a hundred suns explode every year in our galaxy, at this very moment some race is dying in the depths of space. Whether that race has done good or evil during its lifetime will make no difference in the end. There is no divine justice, for there is no God. Yet, yet of course, what we have seen proves nothing of the sort. Anyone who argues thus is being swayed by emotion, not logic. God has no need to justify his actions to man. He who built the universe can destroy it when he chooses. It is arrogance. It is perilously near blasphemy for us to say what he may or may not do. This I could have accepted, hard though it is to look upon whole worlds and peoples thrown into the furnace. But there comes a point when even the deepest faith must falter. And now as I look at the calculations lying before me, I, I know I have reached that point at last. We could not tell before we reached the nebula how long ago the explosion took place. Now from the astronomical evidence and the record in the rocks of that one surviving planet, I have been able to date it very exactly. I know in what year the light of this colossal conflagration reached our Earth. I know how brilliantly the supernova whose corpse now dwindles behind our speeding ship once shone in terrestrial skies. I know how it must have blazed low in the east before sunrise like a beacon in that oriental dawn. There can be no reasonable doubt. The ancient mystery is solved at last. Yet, oh God, there were so many stars you could have used. What was the need to give these people to the fire that the symbol of their passing might shine above Bethlehem? That's titled The Star. It comes from The Other Side of the Sky, a collection of short stories by Arthur C. Clarke.
Now from Ray Bradbury's book, A Medicine for Melancholy, this is the gift. Tomorrow would be Christmas, and even while the three of them rode to the rocket port, the mother and father were worried. It was the boy's first flight into space, his very first time in a rocket, and they wanted everything to be perfect. So when at the customs table, they were forced to leave behind his gift, which exceeded the weight limit by no more than a few ounces, and the little tree with the lovely white candles, they felt themselves deprived of the season and their love. The boy was waiting for them in the terminal room, walking toward him after their unsuccessful clash with the interplanetary officials. The father and mother whispered to each other, Noel, what, what should we do? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, what can we do? I know, the silly rules. And you still want it. Ah, yes. The siren gave a great howl and people pressed forward into the Mars rocket. The mother and father walked at the very last, their small, pale son between them, silent. Uh, I'll think of something. And the rocket took off, and they were flung headlong into dark space. The rocket moved and left fire behind and left Earth behind, on which the date was December 24th, 2052, heading out into a place where there was no time at all, no month, no year, no hour. They slept away the rest of the first day. Near midnight by the Earth Time New York watches, the boy awoke and said, I want to go look out the porthole. There was only one port, a window of immensely thick glass of some size up on the next deck. Uh, not quite yet, my son. I'll, I'll take you up later. I want to see where we are and where we're going. I, I want you to wait for a reason. He had been lying awake, turning this way and that, thinking of the abandoned gift, the problem of the season, the lost tree, and the white candles. And at last, sitting up no more than five minutes ago, he believed he had found a plan. He need only carry it out, and his journey would be fine and joyous indeed. Well, son, in, in exactly one half hour, it'll be Christmas. Oh. Oh. The mother, dismayed that he had mentioned it, Somehow she had rather hoped that the boy would forget. The boy's face grew feverish and his lips crumbled. I know, I know. Will I get a present? Will I? Will I have a tree? You promise? Yes, yes, all that and and more. I I mean it. I I really mean it. All and more, much more. Uh, now excuse me. I'll be back soon. He left them for about twenty minutes. When he came back, he was smiling. Well, it's almost time. Could I hold your watch, Dad? The watch was handed over, and he held it ticking in his fingers as the rest of the hour drifted by in fire and silence and unfelt motion. It's Christmas now. Christmas! Where's my present? Well, here we go. And the father took his boy by the shoulder and led him from the room, down the hall, up a rampway, his wife following. I don't understand. You will, you will now. Here we are. They had stopped at the closed door of a large cabin. The father tapped three times and then twice in a code. The door opened and the light in the cabin went out and there was a whisper of voices. Go on in, son. It's dark. I'll hold your hand. Come on, Mama. They stepped into the room and the door shut and the room was very dark indeed. And before them loomed a great glass eye, the porthole, a window four feet high and six feet wide from which they could look out into space. The boy gasped. 
Behind him, the father and the mother gasped with him. And then in the dark room, some people began to sing. Merry Christmas, son. And the voices in the room sang the old, the familiar carols. And the boy moved forward slowly until his face was pressed against the cool glass of the port. And he stood there for a long, long time, just looking and looking out into space. And the deep night at the burning and the burning of ten billion, billion white and lovely candles. comes from Clarion Coo, 
a collection of speculative fiction and criticism edited by Robin Scott Wilson. This is a story by Molly Daniel called Winter Housekeeping. At first, there was no traffic along the street where Sarah lived. And when the tree toad stopped chirping, the house lay still and quiet behind its overgrown shrubs. Sarah lay in the unbearable dark silence of the bedroom, listening. Age was seeping through the house like an orderless gas, permeating the floorboards and rising slowly to the ceiling. It wasn't all the rooms getting stronger every minute, and it ached. Sarah could feel the ache of old age pulsing all around her brushing against her face as she lay in bed. A current of it swept her cheek, and she held her breath until finally she had to inhale. She felt age burn her nostrils and throat, finally impacting on her lungs. Her chest rattled with a force as she coughed, a labored, wheezing sound. She felt her husband's weight shift on the bed, and a voice came out of the darkness. Did you forget to take your medicine again? Oh, I hate it. I never forget to take my medicine. His hand slid over to touch hers under the sheets. You mean you never remember? The hand was heavy and dry, and it trembled in hers until she pulled away. Henry's voice came again, louder and closer. It isn't the same thing, is it? She lay very still on the bed, blotting out everything and trying to think herself far away. She felt herself slipping into the darkness when Henry's words brought her back sharply. It is, isn't it? I thought you were over that, Sarah. We, we've done all we can do. You've got to quit thinking about it. Age was swirling around her neck, tugging at the folds of flesh that hung there. She shivered and pulled the covers up under her chin. Sarah! She didn't answer, and he began to talk in a low voice. Sarah, there's no point in trying to start over. We've had our life, and we've had most of it together. Now, that's something, isn't it? And we can't throw it away. No matter how hard you try, you can't throw it away. She had thrown away the dishes when she had realized about the food. It was poisoning them. She knew it in the slight, barely perceptible wrongness that made familiar food stick in her throat. She changed the cooking habits of 50 years, adding spices and fruits with exotic names, but the wrongness persisted. And even Henry began to complain. In the end, she saw that it was the dishes. The heavy china that had been a wedding present was releasing age, saturating their food with the pent-up years. She threw it away, bought new china with a bright floral pattern, and found that she could eat again. The rugs were the next to go, and her feet quit hurting at the end of the day. The old wallpaper was stripped away, all the pictures were replaced, and suddenly she found that her eyes didn't burn whenever she tried to read. Piece by piece, she routed out the years and scoured them away. Age had lulled her into complacency, sucking her gently into death. Now she was awake, 
Every day she worked harder and felt younger. Through it all, Henry stood by, unquestioning, seeming to understand. He didn't seem to care that she was working to save them both, but he didn't try to stop her. He just stood by, shaking his head always with the same sad smile. And he didn't get younger. Every time she finished a project, she would come to him a little stronger, a little finer. And he was always the same. He was like the house, heavy, solid, and rotting away inside on his firm foundations. She accused him of not wanting to grow younger with her, and he only said, I don't ever want to lose you. She didn't know what he meant. Finally, when everything in the house had been replaced, she realized that she had failed. She felt better than she had in many years, but she was still an old woman. Her skin was still mottled. Her hair was still yellowed and sparse. Inside, she was 18, but her body was still 17, rushing toward death. She couldn't die inside this ugly old woman. She had to get out. She told Henry what they had to do, and he refused. Oh, Sarah, we can't sell the house. The house is all we have left. It's us, Sarah, and, and we can't live anywhere else. Failure and age closed in around her, and she suddenly felt... Very tired. Going to kill us both soon. I tried. I tried. He came closer until he was leaning over her, talking rapidly. Sarah, I don't want to lose you. I can't put you away. I can't do it, but I'm going to have to if you don't stop this. I let you have your way, and it didn't help. And now you're just going to have to quit it. He was breathing hard, and she could feel the warm, sour breath on her face. It felt like the currents of age that were poisoning the house. His breath was age, and he was age. They had grown old together, and he was killing her with his memories. Go to sleep. I'll be better. I've been carrying on like a crazy woman. Don't know what came over me. Go to sleep. She waited until he had been asleep a long time before she slipped out of bed, felt her way to the closet, and retrieved the plastic cleaning bag. He didn't wake up. She had known he wouldn't. For a moment, she wondered sadly how he could be so willing to die. She would have to find someone, she thought, who needed to live as badly as she did. She crossed the room and drew back the curtain so that a little pale light fell across the bed. And then, straddling him, she watched her arms grow firmer and her skin grow smoother as she held him down.
Winter Housekeeping, a story by Molly Daniel that comes from Clarion 2, edited by Robin Scott Wilson. This is Michael Hansen, and reading with me, Jay Fitz. Public Hating by Steve Allen. The weather was a little cloudy on that September 9th, and here and there in the crowds that surged up the ramps into the stadium, people were looking at the sky and then at their neighbors and squinting and saying, Hope she doesn't rain. On television, the weatherman had forecast slight cloudiness but no showers. It was not cold. All over the neighborhood surrounding the stadium, people poured out of streetcars and buses and subways. In ant-like lines, they crawled across streets, through turnstiles, up stairways, along ramps, through gates, down aisles. Laughing and shoving restlessly, damp-palmed with excitement, they came shuffling into the great concrete bowl, some stopping to go to the restroom, some buying popcorn, some taking free pamphlets from the uniformed attendants. Everything was free this particular day. No tickets had been sold for the event. The public proclamations had simply been made in the newspapers and on TV, and over 65,000 people had responded. For weeks, of course, the papers had been suggesting that the event would take place. All during the trial, even as early as the selection of the jury, the columnists had slyly hinted at the inevitability of the outcome. But it had only been official since yesterday. The television networks had actually gotten a slight jump on the papers. At 6 o'clock, the government had taken over all network facilities for a brief five-minute period during which the announcement was made. The premier had said, very calm, very handsome, in a gray double-breasted suit, that we've all followed with great interest the course of the trial of Professor Ketteridge. Early this afternoon, the jury returned a verdict of guilty. The verdict having been confirmed within the hour by the Supreme Court in the interests of time-saving, the White House has decided to make the usual prompt official announcement. There will be a public hating tomorrow. The time, 2.30 p.m., the place, Yankee Stadium in New York City. Your assistance is earnestly requested. Those of you in the New York area will find, and the voice had gone on, filling in other details. And in the morning, the early editions of the newspapers included pictures captioned, Bronx couple first in line, and... Students wait all night to view hating and early birds. By 1.30 in the afternoon, there was not an empty seat in the stadium, and people were beginning to fill up a few of the aisles. 
special police began to block off the exits, and word was sent down to the street that no more people could be admitted. Hawkers slipped through the crowd selling cold beer and hot dogs. Sitting just back of what would have been first base had the Yankees not been playing in Cleveland, Frederick Traub stared curiously at the platform in the middle of the field. It was about twice the size of a prize-fighting ring. In the middle of it, there was a small raised section on which was placed a plain wooden kitchen chair. To the left of the chair, there were seating accommodations for a small group of dignitaries. Downstage, so to speak, there was a speaker's lectern and a battery of microphones. The platform was hung with bunting and pennants. The crowd was beginning to hum ominously. At two minutes after two o'clock, a small group of men filed out onto the field from a point just back of home plate. The crowd buzzed more loudly for a moment and then burst into applause. The men carefully climbed a few wooden steps, walked in single file across the platform, and seated themselves in the chair set out for them. Traub turned around and was interested to observe high in the press box the winking red lights of television cameras, and he said softly to his companion, Remarkable. Yeah, I suppose, but uh, pretty effective. I guess that's right. Still, it seems a little strange to me. We do things rather differently. Traub listened for a moment to the voices around him. Surprisingly, no one seemed to be discussing the business at hand. Baseball, movies, the weather, gossip, personal small talk, a thousand and one subjects were introduced. It was almost as if they were trying not to mention the hating. Trub's friend's voice broke in on Trub's reverie. Well, you think it'd be okay when we uh, get down to business? I've seen them keel over. I, I'll be all right, but I still can't believe it. Eh, what do you mean? Oh, you know, the whole thing, how it started, how you found you could do it. Yeah, beats the hell out of me, you know. I think it was that guy at Duke University who first came up with the idea. The mind over matter thing's been around a long time, of course, but this guy, he was the first one to prove scientifically that mind can control matter. Did it with dice, I believe. Yeah, that's right. First he found some guys who, uh, you know, could drop a dozen or so dice down a chute of some kind and actually control the direction they'd take. Then they discovered the secret. It was really simple. The guys who could control the dice were simply the guys who thought they could. Then one time they got the idea of taking the dice into an auditorium and having about 2,000 people concentrate on forcing the dice one way or the other. That did it. It was the most natural thing in the world when you think about it. See, if one horse can pull a heavy load so far and so fast, it figures that 10 horses can pull it a lot farther and a lot faster. They had those dice falling where they wanted them 80% of the time. When did they first substitute a living organism for the dice? <laughs> Damn if I know. It was quite a few years ago, and at first the government sort of clamped down on the thing. There was a little last-ditch fight from the churches, I think. But they finally realized you couldn't stop it. Is this an unusually large crowd? Nah, not for a political prisoner. You take a rapist or a murderer, uh, some of them don't pull more than maybe uh, 20,000, 30,000. The people just don't get stirred up enough. The sun had come out from behind the cloud now, and Traub watched silently as large map-shaped shadows moved majestically across the grass. She's warming up, someone said. Yeah, that's right. 
A voice agreed. It's going to be real nice. Traub leaned forward and lowered his head as he retied the laces on his right shoe, and in the next instant he was shocked to attention by a guttural roar from the crowd that vibrated the floor. In distant right center field, three men were walking toward the platform. Two of them were walking together. The third was slouched in front of them, head down, his gait unsteady. Traub had thought he was going to be all right. But now, looking at the tired figure being prodded toward second base, and looking at the bare, bald head, he began to feel slightly sick. It seemed to take forever before the two guards jostled the prisoner up the stairs and toward the small kitchen chair. When he reached it and seated himself, the crowd roared again. A tall, distinguished man stepped to the speaker's lectern and cleared his throat, raising his right hand in an appeal for quiet, and he said... Uh, all right, all right. The mob slowly fell silent. Traub clasped his hands tightly together. He felt a little ashamed. The speaker went on. All right. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of the President of the United States, I welcome you to another public hating. This particular affair, as you know, is directed against the man who was yesterday judged guilty in United States District Court right here in New York City, Professor Arthur Ketteridge. At the mention of Ketteridge's name, the crowd made a noise like an earthquake rumble. Several pop bottles were thrown futilely from the center field bleachers. They will begin in just a moment. But first, I should like to introduce the Reverend Charles Fuller, of the Park Avenue Reborn Church, who will make the invocation. A small man with glasses stepped forward, replaced the first speaker at the microphone, closed his eyes, and threw back his head. Our Heavenly Father, to whom we are indebted for all the blessings of this life, grant we beseech thee that we act today in justice and in the spirit of truth. Grant, O Lord, we pray thee, that what we are about to do here today will render us the humble servants of thy divine will. For it is written, the wages of sin is death. Search deep, into this man's heart for the seed of repentance if there be such and if there be not plant it therein O Lord in thy goodness and mercy <clears throat> Amen The crowd which had stood quietly during the prayer now sat down and began to buzz again the first speaker rose all right. You know we have a job to do, and you know why we have to do it. Yes, screen thousands of voices. Then let us get to the business at hand. At this time, I would like to introduce to you a very great American who, to use the old phrase, needs no introduction. Former president of Harvard University, 
current advisor to the Secretary of State, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Howard S. Weltmer. A wave of applause vibrated the air. Dr. Weltmer stepped forward, shook hands with the speaker, and adjusted the microphone. Uh, thank you. Now, we, we won't waste any more time here since what we are about to do will take every bit of our energy and concentration if it is to be successfully accomplished. I ask you all to direct your unwavering attention toward the man seated in the chair to my left here. A man who, in my opinion, is the most despicable criminal of our time. Professor Arthur Ketteridge. The mob shrieked. I ask you to rise. That's it. Everybody stand up. Now, I want every one of you, I understand we have upwards of 70,000 people here today, I want every single one of you to stare directly at this fiend in human form, Ketteridge. And I want you to let him know, by the wondrous power that lies in the strength of your emotional reservoirs, I want you to let him know that he is a criminal, that he is worse than a murderer, that he has committed treason, that he is not loved by anyone anywhere in the universe, and that he is rather despised with a vigor equal in heat to the power of the sun itself. People around Traub were shaking their fists now. Their eyes were narrowed, their mouths turned down at the corners. A woman fainted. Come on, let's feel it. Under the spell of the speaker, Traub was suddenly horrified to find that his blood was racing, his heart pounding. He felt anger surging up in him. He could not believe he hated Ketteridge, but he could not deny he hated something. On the souls of your mothers, on the future of your children, out of your love for your country, I demand of you that you unleash your power to despise. I want you to become ferocious. I want you to become as beasts of the jungle, as furious as they in the defense of their homes. Do you hate this man? Yes, roared the crowd. Fiend! Enemy of the people! Do you hear, Catteridge? Traub watched in dry-mouthed fascination as the slumped figure in the chair straightened up convulsively and jerked at his collar. At this first indication that their power was reaching home, the crowd roared to a new peak of excitement. We plead with you people watching today on your television sets to join with us in hating this wretch. All over America, stand up if you will. Stand in your living rooms, face the East, face New York City, and let anger flood your hearts. Speak it out, let it flow. A man beside Traub sat down, turned aside, and vomited softly into a handkerchief. Traub picked up the binoculars the man had discarded for the moment and fastened them on Ketteridge's figure, twirling the focus knob furiously. In a moment, the man leaped into the foreground, and Traub saw that his eyes were full of tears, that his body was racked with sobs, that he was in obvious pain. He is not fit to live. Turn your anger upon him. Channel it. Make it productive. 
Be not angry with your family, your friends, your fellow citizens, but let your anger pour out in a violent torrent on the head of this human devil. Come on, let's do it. Let's get it over with. At that moment, Traub was at last convinced of the enormity of Ketteridge's crime, and Weltmer said, All right, all right, that's it. Now let's get down to brass tacks. Let's concentrate on his right arm. Hate it, do you hear? Burn the flesh from the bone. You can do it. Come on. Burn him alive. Traub stared unblinking through the binoculars at Ketteridge's right arm as the prisoner leaped to his feet and ripped off his jacket, howling. With his left hand, he gripped his right forearm, and then Traub saw the flesh turning dark, first a deep red then a livid purple. The fingers contracted and Ketteridge whirled on his small platform like a dervish, slapping his arm against his side. That's it. That's it. You're doing it. You're doing it. Mind over matter. That's it. Burn this offending flesh. Be as the avenging angels of the Lord. Smite this devil. That's it. The flesh was turning darker now across the shoulders as Ketteridge tore his shirt off. Screaming, he broke away from his chair and leaped off the platform, landing on his knees on the grass. Oh, the power is wonderful. We've got him now. Now, let's really turn it on. Come on. Ketteridge writhed on the grass and then rose and began running back and forth, directionless, like a bug on a griddle. Kraub could watch no longer. He put down the binoculars and staggered back up the aisle. Outside the stadium, he walked for 12 blocks before he hailed a cab. comes from an anthology edited by Judith Merrill titled SF, The Best of the Best. I'm Michael Hansen. Reading with me was Harvey K. Black. Technical operation for this broadcast by Mary Kay Payne. Mindwebs is a production of WHA Radio in Madison, a service of University of Wisconsin Extension. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.